to Living Fabulously with Bev. The mission for the show is to get to the heart of well-being through inspirational stories of everyday people, expert insights from a number of health and lifestyle-related disciplines, and exploration of topics that underpin well-being. If you want to take control of your well-being and put yourself front and center in your life, then this is the podcast for you. I want you to feel calm, nurtured and inspired so you can enjoy your life and your success. If you have not yet done so, please subscribe, rate and review on iTunes or Stitcher. And if you know someone else that would get value from the show as well, please share it with them. Join me on this journey and let's live the fab life together. Today gives me great pleasure to welcome Annette Tonkin, who has so much to share about the mind-brain connection that often determines why two people with essentially the same injury or experience can have vastly different outcomes. Welcome, Annette. Thanks, Bev, for inviting me to be on your show. Good to have you here. So tell me about yourself and what you do, Annette. Well, now I love spending my time educating practitioners on communication strategies to manage or better manage clients who look as if they lack motivation. And it's something that's quite prevalent that in our health education now, we rarely ever get those sort of strategies to manage people and help them elicit what they want to do and why they want to do it. We're very good at telling people what to do and, and history tells us that that isn't necessarily a very effective way of working with people. Mm. And what about your background before you were working with practitioners? Well, given the age that I am, I've had a a long background in getting to something that I really love to do. First of all, I guess, like from a professional point of view, I graduated as a physiotherapist and went straight into sports medicine as as a young physiotherapist. And then from there, developed, went on to have my own practices and I worked with elite sporting teams, both in Adelaide and then Australia with Adelaide Quit Lightning and then internationally with the Adelaide with the Australian women's cricket team and the Australian women's basketball team. So my 30-year career as a sports physiotherapist was spent both in a clinic and also travelling, and it's travelling with athletes that really started to enlighten what I'm doing today. And also some of the experiences that I had with the more challenging patients in my clinic and, and working out how I could better help them rather than thinking that they had to fix themselves. So it's been quite an interesting life professionally. I also had a number of very serious orthopedic uh, surgeries because of my sport and and my work and a number of things that I did throughout my life. I I wouldn't change anything. But, you know, overcoming the types of injuries that I treated gave me an acute awareness of, again, the mind-body relationship and how difficult it is to get over injury or illness if you don't have the right mindset. So professionally, uh, it was good. I wouldn't want to go through any more big surgeries, but I learned a lot from that and that's helped me doing to do what I'm doing now as well. Great. And how would you describe your journey to where you are today? Look, I think it's been one of evolution. Like I really struggled personally with a, a very low self-esteem when I was young and the way I talked to myself. So internally, I was a very different person to the person that people saw me as a a successful clinician and physiotherapist traveling the world. I I really battled with that I'm not good enough. Some of the self-talk that I did to myself, I wouldn't even do to my worst enemies. And that's also taught me a lot of really good lessons as well. But like 
having that dual life of being internally a mess and looking so successful on the outside is an illusion that's not overly productive nor helpful. And, and, and working through that from some really critical times in my life that made it – well, I could have chose not to, but I chose to, to work on it and, and get better. And achieving things that I thought I wanted to do, like getting to the Olympics – I always had a dream of getting to the Olympics and I wasn't good enough as a, as a sports person but because I visualise it in my mind from a teenager, it's amazing how when you do that you see opportunities and opportunities came along throughout my career and eventually I did get to Athens in 2004 as a physiotherapist with the Australian women's basketball team and we won a silver medal there and it was a wonderful time but the way I thought I would be over the moon about achieving that and I was standing there listening to our national anthem in the uniform which is something that I visualised when I was young and I thought I'm not happy. I, I really, this isn't what I thought it would be. And it dawned on me then that I'd worked so hard to achieve this goal, not because I wanted to do it, because I was still proving to my father, who was, he passed away by this time, that I was good enough. Because in my mind, I thought, well, if you get to the Olympics, well, there's nothing better than that. You've got to be good. And I thought, well, this is something I need to take away from this experience. If, if I do anything in the future from now on, I'm going to do it because I want to do it, not because I'm trying to prove myself to other people because you don't become happy by doing that. And look, if nothing else, it was a great experience. I loved it. But it, it again taught me a really powerful lesson about achieving things because it's important to you not to prove yourself to other people. So that was hard. And then, look, you know, my young years as a, as a teenager in my 20s, I, I went through an attempted suicide. And look, I had a really dark time during that time of my years and was on really nasty drugs and then going through that anorexia and bulimia and all that self-hatred and at some stage I got to the point after being on lithium for a while that this isn't a good way to live it, it, basically drugs they do have a purpose because they keep you alive when you're that low but at some stage there's a point where you could say you know this is I can stay like this for the rest of my life and use it as an excuse I'm depressed or, you know, I'm on antidepressants or I can say it's, it's, it's time for me to do something about this and take control of what's going on in my mind and what I'm putting into it and what I say to myself. And that in, that in itself has been a 40-year journey because it doesn't happen overnight. Just because you decide to do something doesn't automatically mean it's, it's there and it's happened. It's a long, long journey to get from that, that really dark period in somebody's life or in my life to being relatively happy. I mean, nobody's happy all the time, every day. I have my ups and downs, but, but I am happy in my own skin these days and I wasn't back in those 20s, which is a pity. Most people say about their 20s, they'd love to go back there and I think I would, there's no way I would go back to my 20s. <laughs> but I learned a lot and it made me who I am and it made me so much more empathetic towards the people that I see and patients that I saw that looked as if they were really struggling. So I guess I've, I've had a very eventful life and I'm pretty happy with it now. And I guess that helps me understand why you have this passion for the mind-body connection. So I'd love to know what is your perspective of the mind-body connection? One can't exist without the other. When we were physios back in my era, we used to get uh, trained that if somebody came in with a knee injury, you look at the knee and you, you look at the joint above and below God forbid if you thought that there was a brain attached to the body that was coming in with a knee. <laughs> <laughs> you didn't 
about it, but they're travelling with patients. They're travelling with the, the um, sports people, the basketballers and the cricketers, and when you live with them for such a, a long period of time, you begin to realise that it's not only the clinical skills, and in fact it's the care, the empathy and the trust and the, the way you communicate them, which is more powerful in helping them overcome their adversity than just treating an injury. So I'm very aware now, and it's gradually becoming more prevalent, I think, in, in medicine or health or doctors or physios, that there is more than just the knee, and there's been some fantastic research coming out on, on, on how the mind influences what goes out into the body, into the healing rate of the body, and uh, the perception of the, the um, mind of what's going on. So they're, they're totally connected, and you can't dissociate them. I know that now. Didn't know it uh, uh, 30 odd years ago. And you spoke previously about the conditioning. You know, you talked about your father. So, what role does conditioning play in the beliefs that we acquire? It plays a really, really big role. And one of the things that I learned when I was doing my grad cert in NLP is the amount of unconscious learning we do as children, and, and particularly up to about the age of seven. And we don't realize that. I mean, we learn to walk and crawl and talk all from. Uh, copying other people so we're getting that conditioning from an early age and we don't have any control over it and people can learn that they'll never become rich or they'll never become successful or once they've hurt their back they'll never be the same again just by listening to adults around them and they can take that into their adult life without even knowing that they have that belief so that unconscious conditioning is is really really powerful and also the conditioning from repeated experiences. So if you go and see somebody or you do something and you get a bad uh, outcome and if it happens a number of times and by the time you get to the next person, you've actually predetermined that this isn't going to work. And there's been some fantastic work by Fabriazzo Benedetti on, on placebo and placebo work. Just reading some of his stuff at the moment, it's really, really interesting that you get enough of this conditioning and you actually create an outcome and sometimes you're not even aware of it unless um, it's unless somebody else helps you to become aware of it. If we've got this conditioning, can we change this? How do we? How could we change that conditioning? Absolutely. You can change just about anything in your body except for your genetics. <laughs> you can change what your genetic or how you, what, how you use your genetics. So yes, you can change your conditioning. Like I had a belief that I wasn't good enough, uh, which was, I, I took it in as a lesson. I don't think my father ever expected or thought he was giving me that belief, but he never ever told me that I, what I'd done, it was good enough. It was always, oh, you could do better. So that you could do better as a young child and as an adolescent thought was interpreted that I'm not good enough. I took that belief into my adult life that I'm not good enough, nothing's ever good enough. And like I said, standing at the Olympics, I realized that for me to change, I have to recognize that this is a belief that I've taken from my father, whether it was intentioned or not, and I've internalized it, but I can change it. So once you recognize that there is something you want to change, that's the start. That is just the start. Then you've got to decide, well, do I want to change it? Because it may actually serve plenty of, there might be plenty of benefits from keeping things the way it is. You might get a lot of attention or you uh, might stop you from taking actions that you're afraid of. There can be benefits from uh, maintaining a belief. 
But once you decide you've got a belief that you want to change or a conditioning that you want to change and you decide that you're going to change it, then you need to decide what are you going to change it to. You can't just remove it. Your brain needs to fill a void. So you've got to decide, well, what do I want to fill it with? What is the belief that I want to have in the future? And then put a lot of work into it, rewiring the brain. I don't know if you've heard of Norman Doidge's work of the cells that fire together, wire together, and it's very true. But if you want to change that wiring that have become like super, super quick freeways that your impulses or brain nerve impulses go along, you have to do a lot of hard work. I think from my experience in conditioning athletes and also myself that it's harder to change the wiring in your brain than it is to change your body, but it is possible. You've got to be determined to do it and and be passionate and and get help sometimes and support. But yes, you can change any conditioning or any belief that you have as long as you make a decision to do it, have something to fill it with and then are prepared to put in the hard work. That's the hardest thing for most people. They make the decision, oh, I don't like this, I'm going to change. But when the nitty-gritty comes in, the habits and the the thought patterns resurface, they don't go on and, and work, okay, I realize I'm saying this to myself or I'm doing this behavior. I don't want to do this. What am I going to do differently? And just conscious and really, really work on it. It's by far the hardest thing to do. And I guess habits take some time to form. So to replace them with a new way of being and believing also takes effort. A lot of effort. Yeah, it does. The more entrenched the habit and the more benefits the habit has for you at an unconscious level, the, the harder it is to change because looking at you've got to be really really either self-aware honest with yourself or working with somebody whom you trust that can bring these sorts of things up that most people maintain behaviors and habits because they gain something from it and that gain and somebody might think you know i'm depressed or i'm whatever unhelpful belief that they have what benefit do I get of being like this? Like there can't be any. But generally, if you're totally honest with yourself, there is a benefit that you are gaining. And it's a matter of recognizing that, being honest with yourself and saying, well, how can I get that benefit in another way that is not so self-limiting? So true. We've talked about long-term habits, but we are all dealing with daily stressors that may cause some anxiety or low mood or depression. Can you please explain some processes to identify the triggers and any strategies to deal with these? Yes. Uh, Yeah, absolutely, Bev. I mean, even though I've come a long way in managing my depression and it's my belief that, you know, serious depression never leaves leaves you totally. You learn to manage it. And so so those things like overwhelm or lack of self-worth or anxiety I still definitely have those and even dark thoughts come into my mind occasionally but the way I deal with overwhelm and I can feel overwhelmed when I start thinking it's all too much or where do I start that's the self-talk that I give to myself so they're the, the two sorts of things I think okay I'm hitting and I go back to a saying that Lou Holtz he was a football coach in America and he's a very entertaining speaker and I've listened to to some of his talks but One of the things that really struck me is asking the one single question to yourself is what's important now. It's his win strategy, which is what's important now, and recognizing, okay, what is the most important thing that I can do now and then do it? Because if you do something, overwhelm seems to disappear. It might 
come up again a half an hour later and you can ask yourself the same question. But it's always what's important now, find something I can do and take action. Because once you take action, overwhelm seems to dissipate to, to some degree. So that's my, my personal strategy in dealing with overwhelm. My anxiety, if I get anxious, which doesn't happen very often, but certainly pre-presentation, I get anxious. And I've learned breathing. It's very, very hard to stay to be anxious and breathe slow and deep at the same time. They're two emotions and, and physiology, physiology that don't necessarily go together. So if I breathe slow and deep, that will calm me a little bit. And then I ask my anxiety. I, I've now decided to, to see it as a friend. And Ben Harvey from Authentic Education taught me this, and that is that Rather than seeing it as an enemy, ask, see it as a friend and ask what it's trying to tell me. So if I'm getting overly anxious before I do something, I say, well, what are you trying to say to me? Is it that I'm not prepared enough, that something's not exactly right, that I don't know my subject enough? What is it you're trying to say to me? And I listen and then I go back and again take some action. So I've become great friends with anxiety and that's helped me to manage it a bit better and now I recognise it as a way of making more in tune to what I need to do to, to achieve what I want to achieve. So that was that's my way of dealing with anxiety in pre-presentation or, or presentation before anything of significance. My dark thoughts... They really do still come every now and again, even though I'm really happy in myself and I'm happy as a person and what I'm doing and where I'm going. Every now and again, that little thought, you're not good enough, comes up or um, nobody wants to hear what you've got to say. Those, it's amazing how we can just, uh, what we can say to ourselves to just self-destruct, but yeah. <laughs> we all do it. It's, again, being rec- recognising that, that's, that I'm doing that to myself and then I just ask myself, okay, well, what's real right now and, and that helps me put a better perspective on it and if I if I get start getting more and more dark thoughts I listened to good speakers like Zig Ziglar I mean he's passed away but he's a very entertaining motivational speaker and I've just found re- recently the Brian Buffini show and I really like that he's a an Irish American and he's got some really motivational really concrete things to do and say so I I've become very aware of what's going into my brain, whether it's through podcasts like this would be excellent for your listeners. It might be audio tapes, not tapes anymore, but downloading stuff or books that I can listen to in the car or when I'm exercising. TV that I listen to, I very rarely watch news, particularly if I'm getting a bit down and down on myself. I'll only put into my brain what I think will help me uh, move on from being like started to spiral down rather than allowing everybody else to just put more and more um, depressive thoughts into my head. So I've, my dark thoughts now, I guess my strategy is recognize it first and secondly start being aware of what's going into my head, what's going into my brain. And also I guess the other one that I think is a common one is frustration and anger. Frustration and anger is something that if you don't deal with can start to spiral into down, uh, dark or depressive thoughts because if you're angry enough, uh, you, you're not a very happy person. And, and I think the biggest lesson that I ever learned, and I can't even remember who I was listening to when it struck, whether it was a book or whether – I think it was, um, it was Viktor Frankl's A Man's Search for Meaning. 
the last uh, the last of human freedoms is the ability to choose one's attitude in any given circumstances. That is extremely powerful because no matter what happens, you know, my feelings are my responsibility. I, it's totally unproductive to say, oh, you made me feel sad or you, you made me feel angry or you made me feel frustrated or even you made me feel happy because it gives the power of my being over to another person or thing. But by being fully accountable for my own feelings and my own emotions, now I have control over how I want to choose to respond and the outside world has no ability to influence that. It might sound simplistic, but it did also take me a long time to manage that and master it. But I very rarely get angry for very long. Everybody, I, I do get angry every now and again, but I don't stay angry. Or I do get frustrated, but I manage it because I could okay, what can I do about this? How am I accountable for this? What can I change that doesn't allow that other person or thing to create that emotion in me? So I'm fully, fully accountable for my own uh, for my own emotions now and that is extremely life-changing, I'd have to say. I agree with you. I believe that in any situation you can press that pause button and do what I would call respond rather than react to the stimulus. So it may take time to understand what the trigger or, you know, what's triggered in you. And you talked about self-awareness. So what is being triggered in you and why do you feel angry or why do you feel upset, you know? So I think that self-examination is a, is a good step. Yeah, look, it is. And then the other, the lead on from that is what can I do about it? What What, what is my action from here? I mean, even if somebody cuts me off driving I can get angry about that um, or I could say well you know I can go a little bit slower I could change lanes or I can choose to think that this, he's got a good reason for doing that it's not my power if I get anger it stays it stays with me where it doesn't affect that other person in the slightest exactly. <laughs> from it. so it's an interesting thing your mind is complicit in the provocation of any emotion you have and you choose it. We choose every emotion we've got. And we choose to either blame somebody else if we don't want to be accountable for that emotion. You've given a, a great number of examples of response and strategy to different issues. Are there other examples that you can talk about that can be applied more generally? It comes back to emotions and how you talk to yourself. And blaming and complaining, I, I think being aware of how much you your self-talk I've mentioned that a couple of times because it's critical just listen to what you say to yourself and listen to the words you use I mean I can't say publicly on some of the words that I used to my I used to talk say to myself because it's just appalling and I'm sure I'm not the only person <laughs> but it would be verbal abuse or harassment if it was in the workplace if you don't do it to other people why do you do it to yourself I mean it's it's just not worth treating yourself like that so being very aware of the language that you use to yourself is one thing. Being aware of how much you do blame other people or complain about things because that does affect how you feel. And so if you want to if you want to be more in control of your life and where you're going, stop blaming and complaining the outside world. It's too easy, it's an opt-out, and it's an opt-out for not taking any action. So Become aware first that you do it. And a little exercise that I did a long time ago, and I read this somewhere, so I tried it. I was putting an elastic band on my wrist relatively loosely for anybody who does it. I don't want to have anybody cutting the circulation off in their, their hand, but 
every time I complain about something, it could be, oh, it's too hot today. We're in Darwin. It is hot. Uh, I, I wish I, I wish it was cold. I mean, they're they're all complaints about rather than you know, most people down south at this time of the year would give anything to be up here. <laughs> so that first thing of flipping the uh, elastic band on my wrist and then taking it to the other one, and if you can get to a day where you don't change hands at all, you're doing a really good job. And I think the exercise was to do it for a month, but that's darn hard. <laughs> So become aware, aware of whether you are blaming or, or um, planning about things because it's, it takes the control out of what you can do about yourself and gives it over to, again, somebody else. Yeah. Let's change track a little. And could you tell me about your work with health professionals and why it's important to you? Because I believe so much that what you say to yourself and what you say to others is really, really important. It's, it's it's something that I've had a passion and an interest in throughout my clinical career, but just never the time to work on it until I gave up in 2009 as a physio. And since then, I've spent the last was it six, seven years now just studying the mind, mind brain connection, and a whole lot of it. So I'm really, really driven every day to make an impact on health professionals, to give them better skills to communicate and motivate their patients so basically the outcomes are improved for everybody because it's very frustrating treating patients that don't want to do anything or uh, seem to lack motivation so so my passion these days is to educate health professionals or clinicians just the little things the community the, the words that you use and how to listen better to how to ask better questions they're the things that I do I write about I present on in workshops that person to person and working with individuals or groups who who want to find a better way of empowering their patients or clients to to do what they say they want to do or choose not to. You know, sometimes people don't want to make changes and if they're honest enough, they can say that and they can walk away and be happy. So that's what I do. I work with other people. My aim is to transform the way health professionals work with even their most challenging clients so that the, uh, the outcomes for everybody are dramatically improved. Great. And what are your tips for living fabulously? Be really aware of what you're putting into your brain through the five senses, and that's seeing, feeling, hearing, tasting, and smelling, because they all affect your brain. And your brain will affect uh, what you think, and what you think affects how you feel, and what you feel affects what you do. So be aware of what you're putting into your brain, because it will affect your life. So that's probably my biggest tip for your listeners Fantastic. You can find Annette by searching for her website, which is mindandbodyconsultancy.com and also on Facebook under the same URL. Annette, thank you so much for sharing your journey and inspiring us to be accountable for the life we choose to live and responsible for what we put into our brains. I really resonated with the conversation around choosing our response to a situation in a productive way and that recognizing that something you want to change is the first step to resolving any conditioning whether it's short-term or lifetime conditioning but your point was also and then the hard work the action comes thereafter so thanks so much thanks a lot great to be with you Beth. thank you so much for listening and i would love to know what you enjoyed most about this episode you can connect with me on facebook by searching for Living Fabulously with Bev or feel welcome to leave a message or comment on my website. You can get the links and any references from this episode in the show notes at my website www.livingfabulously.com forward slash podcasts. Do you have a friend who you think deserves to live fabulously? 
Spread the love around by sharing the podcast with them right now. Until next time, be sure to live the fab life. The information shared here and in our programs and webinars should not be seen as medical advice and is not meant to take the place of seeing licensed health professionals.